0: Okay, uh, good to be here with you guys. My name's Drew, as, as Kelsey mentioned uh, earlier, and I get the privilege of opening up the Book of Romans with you guys tonight. Uh, Scott kind of hit on it, but this year we, uh, we get the opportunity to tackle um, probably one of the most significant documents in world history. And and technically, I could say that about any book in the Bible. It's one of the sixty-six most significant books in uh, history. Uh, but there's something kind of special and different uh, about the book of Romans. There's a lot of people who would regard this as like the most Christ, uh, the most important Christian writing of all time. And and I, I might go there. It's it's definitely up there. I can certainly at least say this that it is the fullest, uh, most straightforward. Uh, Grandest or most amazing um, teaching on the Christian faith that you could probably find. Like, if you want to know what Christians believe, what the core of Christian truth and doctrine is, Romans is a great place to go to. And and it becomes a really big book for uh, the church for a lot of reasons. Like I said, All the books in the Bible, I think, are important. Not all of them can say what Romans can say, which is that it has changed the course of human history. Probably more than once, actually. Let me give you the most famous example. It's the early 1500s, and we're at the end of the medieval age there, and in Europe, the church is an absolute wreck. It's it's a church that is filled almost top to bottom with corruption, especially at the top with corruption amongst most of the leaders. It's a a group, it's an organization that has strayed so far from what the church was designed to be, so far from what Jesus ever taught, so far from what Christianity is, that it might be sometimes hard to even recognize it as church. Primary teaching, most of what was taught at this time, was basically, be good so you don't get sent to hell. Just be good enough that you can earn your way into heaven, and, and actually uh, being good enough is A, defined by what the church says was the good and right thing to do, and B, earning was sometimes actually literal. Pope Julius II was wanting to build, he was a big fan of art and culture and architecture, and so he's the one who commissioned the painting of the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, also wanted to build the largest cathedral on earth, St. Peter's Basilica. And so he started this process. It was beautiful and amazing by the time it was finished, but stuff like that cost money. And so in order to be able to fund that project, one of the things that the church began doing was uh, offering indulgences to people. That is, if you wanted to, you could have certain sins removed from your life, like from the ledger, um, just by paying enough money towards this building, or you could remove certain years off of your time in purgatory, which was kind of, this. the belief was purgatory was like this waiting place for those who were kind of good enough to get into heaven, but not quite good enough to get into heaven. They could go and suffer a little while in purgatory and then go to heaven, but if you gave money, your time in purgatory got cut, or you could even actually pay to have like your family members who are already in purgatory, you could pay to have their time shortened, and so literally you could like, it was like get out of hell free card if you just paid enough money to do those things. And, and, and this was the state of much of the church at that time. And, and the worst thing maybe is this, that nobody even knew that it was off because no one in all of Europe or anywhere else in the world was able to actually read the Bible and see what it was supposed to be about. Only language that the Bible was offered in was in Latin and, and none of the common people spoke that, only the trained clergy the priests, the bishops, the, the uh, cardinals were the only ones who were able to speak Latin. And that was considered to be like a good and right thing. I mean, you don't, you don't know what kind of crazy stuff may happen if we let the common people begin to read the Bible for themselves, what kind of crazy ideas they may get. So it was considered best that nobody actually was reading the Bible for themselves and they had to listen to the church to tell them what to do. Much of the people lived in this angst, and this fear and this shame and this guilt trying to do anything they could to be good enough to not have to go to hell after they died. And, and there's this one young man there at the turn of the 16th century into the 1500s, this young man by the name of Martin. And if people, if other people were like angsty and concerned and they're saying, like Martin made that look like child's play. Like that was his like hobby, was feeling bad about himself. And, and Martin knew, uh, knew beyond like the shadow, he knew that God was against him, knew that he was too sinful, he, he just knew that he was destined for hell and he was consumed with trying to do anything he could to not end up there, to try and be good enough, to try to be religious enough, to try to be spiritual enough to get himself out of that predicament. And so the best way he knew how to do that was to become a monk. It's like the most spiritual thing he could think of, and that's the surest way that he could earn his way, perhaps, into heaven and get God to overlook his sins. And so he became a monk, he joins a monastery, and he goes like all out. He's uh, he's fasting constantly, he's praying constantly, he's spending hours in solitude and in silence and all these things trying to be good enough. He once wrote later, I was a really good monk. He actually says, if there was ever a soul that earned their way into heaven by their monkery, it was me. That's your word for the day, Uh, monkery. If anybody ever made it by monkery, it was me, is what Martin said. And yet, even in all that, he was tormented constantly by this thought that it's not good enough, that I'm not going to make it. Then in the year 1513, he got asked to become a professor of Bible at Wittenberg University. And he began teaching first the Psalms, expounding through the Psalms. A couple years later, he started in on the book of Romans. He began studying and reading this book. And, And the truth is, at first, it did not help. It actually made him more and more angry. Because he kept reading about this righteous God in here and the judgment and the justice and the wrath of God that would be poured out on, man, on sinful mankind. And, and he, it just made him more angry to think about that. This one term kept tripping him up. It was all he could think about. This term, we're actually going to come to it next week um, in this very famous verse that Martin could not stop thinking about. Um, the term, the righteousness of God every time Martin thought about the righteousness of God, all he could think about was how he wasn't. And so the righteousness of God meant to him that God's righteous wrath was coming down on him soon enough. That God's righteous judgment and justice. And he says that he would sit there day and night pondering that word. When you're a monk, you've got a lot of time to ponder, right? And so he sat there day and night pondering that phrase, the righteousness of God and why it troubled him so much and what it could possibly mean. And then one day, in the middle of his pondering, in the middle of his studying, as he began to expand out through the rest of Romans, it finally occurred to him that the righteousness of God, at least as Romans is teaching it, is not simply about God's righteous judgment on sinful humanity, though that's there, but the righteousness of God is something that He offers to us freely. And when that, when that truth hit him, when he realized that that's what Romans had been teaching this whole time, that he had been missing it. He says, it was like I was born anew and I had walked through the door into paradise, and everything in Martin Luther's life at that moment became different. He saw all of the Bible in a brand new light, understood it all completely differently than he ever had before. And he began to change his teaching, and he began to change his prayer life, and he began to change the things he began to proclaim out in public, not just to students, but to everyone else who would listen. And through that reading of the book of Romans, Martin Luther sparked what we now call the Protestant Reformation, which is the movement that changed the Western world forever and really much of the world itself. And Luther chalks so much of it up to this book. He's not the only one. A lot of the world's greatest thinkers would say that their hinge point in life is reading the book of Romans. Augustine, in the 4th century, who's considered one of the greatest philosophical minds for much of the Western world, says his life changed when he felt this calling, this voice, to take up and read the book of Romans. John Wesley, whose preaching influenced much of, what, much of what Christianity is in England and in America today, in the 1700s, was in the same predicament as Martin Luther until he encountered the book of Romans. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, um, was the first guy in hundreds of years to encounter Romans and have it change him in a way that he radically altered New Testament scholarship to focus once again on the gospel and not just on you know, human beings being good people. And Barth said it happened when he encountered this time and time again. Some of these great minds and world changers have been changed by this book, but it's not just the world changers. Actually, for the last several hundreds of years, every day people like you and I have come to this book and have walked away differently. And have been changed by it in radical ways. F.F. Bruce was this... uh, New Testament scholar in the 1900s and he wrote this commentary on the book of Romans. He has this quote there at the beginning of the commentary where he says this, There is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So, let those who have read this far be prepared for the consequences of reading further. You have been warned. And with that, we jump into chapter 1. So go ahead and open up those first couple verses of the book of Romans. As you turn there, I'll just tell you, in order for us to be able to understand any book as well as possible, we want to make sure that we understand the background of that book. We want to try to understand what's going on there. Namely, we want to know who is the author of that book. We want to know uh, the theme of that book, who the author is writing to. And then we want to know uh, the occasion. So like what prompted it and the purpose. So we're going to talk about those things as we read through this book tonight. Romans 1 verse 1 says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So right away we know who the author is. The author is the apostle Paul. That wasn't always his name. The Apostle Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus because that's where he was born. Tarsus, this major urban city center in Asia Minor right there on the Mediterranean Sea. It's it's modern-day Turkey now. He was born in this city called Tarsus, but that's not where he grew up. When he was young, we think maybe 10-ish, he and his family moved to Jerusalem where he was trained up actually under probably the most famous Jewish teacher, the most famous rabbi of the first century, this guy by the name of Gamaliel. Uh, like worldwide known to the Jewish community at that time. And so to be trained under Gamaliel meant that you were something. Like that's, that's big, that's headline grabbing. If you show up and you say, I was a student of, I was a disciple of Gamaliel. And, and Paul was something. He was this rising star amongst the Pharisees party when he was a young man. the Pharisees being this, this group of Jewish people, um, their name means the separate ones. And, and they were kind of separated from the rest of the group because they were, um, unlike almost everybody else, committed with a zealous passion to the keeping of the law, to understanding it, to studying it, to preserving it, and to obeying it. And, and Paul um, was like a cut above even them in his, in his zeal for following the Jewish faith and for following the law, so much so. That in Paul's lifetime, when he was this young man and this new kind of sect, this new movement grew up amongst Judaism, this group of people who started thinking that uh, this Jesus of Nazareth guy was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Uh, When these people started doing this and they began to worship that Jesus as the Son of God, this infuriated Paul. He, He viewed it as a perversion of the faith and an attack, a threat against his people. And so he made it his mission in life to stomp that out and to do everything he could to kill off the Christian movement, to do everything he could to put an end to the church. So he would travel from house to house, and not just house to house, but from town to town, dragging off any Christians he could find in houses and bringing them off and having them imprisoned so that um, that the movement could die off and Judaism could finally have peace. But then something happened. One day he got permission from the high priest in Jerusalem to travel up to Syria to this town of Damascus. And he had heard that the church had gotten started there, that there were Christians there, and so he traveled all the way up there, but on his way there, just outside the town, he has this uh, amazing moment where he encounters the risen Christ, where Jesus appears to him and speaks to him, and from that moment on, Paul's life is changed. And he goes from uh, Christianity's biggest enemy to literally the biggest influential figure in all of Christianity, period. Like outside of Jesus himself, there is no one who has had a greater impact on the Christian faith through his missionary activity, his church planting, and the letters that he's written. No one other than Paul has that. And Paul uses, at the start of this book, he uses three phrases to describe himself. First of all, he says he is a servant of God. The word servant in the Greek is doulos. It literally means slave. And that's the way Paul thinks of himself. What Jesus says, I do. I am his servant. I am his slave. And that is what his life is consumed with doing, is obeying Jesus. The second thing he uses to describe himself, he says, he is an, a, he is, he is an apostle. The first term kind of implies humility. I'm a servant. I'm a slave. The second one implies authority. See, that word apostle uh, in the Greek just means one who is sent. And it refers to someone who comes in the name of or in the authority of somebody else. There are actually all kinds of apostles in the first century. Anyone who is like a missionary, you called them an apostle because they were sent out by the church. But there were thirteen that, that I call capital A apostles, um, the twelve original disciples, minus Judas, Ad Matthias, okay, the twelve disciples, and then Paul. And these ones we call capital A Apostles because they're not just sent out by the church. They were commissioned by Jesus himself. He sent them out to do what they did. And so the the qualifications are you are sent by Jesus. You were a witness to Christ after he resurrected, like you saw him alive. And then you uh, prove that by signs and miracles. Your ministry was marked by signs and miracles. Those three things were needed to be evident for someone to be an apostle of Jesus. Paul is one of those. So when he writes, he says, I come to you on behalf of Jesus. I'm speaking in His name. And then the third thing he says about himself is that he is set apart for the gospel. Set apart for the gospel. That word gospel uh, it means good news, you've probably heard, but it was a political term, actually, at this time. Gospel, euangelion is the word that it means, and, and, and it, was, it was a proclamation of amazing news that the king had done. So when Caesar, when the Roman emperor won a great battle, won a great war, they would send the news out and proclaim it across the empire, and it was known as Gospel. Come hear the gospel of what the king has done. Come hear the amazing victories of the king, the good news about what he is doing in the world. That's the word that Paul uses to describe what he is teaching. I'm here to proclaim the good news of what the true king has done and is doing in the world. But in the same way that he uses these three different phrases to describe himself, he then uses three different phrases to describe the gospel. And by the way, that, the gospel, is the theme of this letter. There have been a lot of people who have tried to figure out exactly what is the theme, but there's nothing better I can give you than that. The gospel is the theme of the book of Romans. Here's what he says in verses 2 through 4 to describe the gospel. Actually, starting there too, says, This is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was uh, concerning his son. Actually, we'll stop there. Concerning his son. So here are the three things he says about the gospel. First of all, it is of God. It's not mine. I didn't make it up. This is God's good news that is being proclaimed to you. Second, uh, he says that it is the gospel that was promised beforehand in the scriptures. Um, this is really critical. And Paul will make, go, go to great lengths to make sure you understand this. Um, he wants you to know that the gospel is not God's plan B that God was not operating one way in the Old Testament, and then He switched it up and changed it in the New Testament. He wants to show that actually this was promised long before. We were in the book of Genesis last year, and in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, Through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Paul says that right there. He was talking in that very moment about what I'm talking to you about today. It was promised long ago. And then lastly, and this is critical for us to be able to understand this because I think a lot of people in the American church don't. He says the gospel is concerning His Son. Concerning Jesus. That is, if you, He doesn't say the gospel concerning salvation. The gospel concerning how you get to heaven. That's, that's not the gospel to Him. That's a part of the gospel that's in there. The gospel concerning your life and how to make it more purpose-driven. That's, that's not what he gets to. The gospel at the center of it is this, is this truth, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's huge to Paul. He'll spend much of his time displaying some of that as well. Um, and then when he gets to Jesus, this is the last time, he gives three descriptions of Jesus as well. Three little phrases to describe him. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, uh, descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. First is this, he's the son of David, that he's, he's the rightful king of Israel. Second is he's the son of God, and we know it because he rose from the grave, Paul says. And then third, um, "Our Lord," which is another political term. That was the word you used for Caesar. Caesar is Lord." And he uses that phrase to describe Jesus here. Continuing in verses five through six, it says this through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul has this kind of interesting way of describing what his mission is. Verse 5, it is to bring about the obedience of faith to all nations. Um, this is fascinating because Paul's going to talk a lot about faith in this book and how we are saved by faith. Um, it's saved not by, contrary to what Martin Luther was taught growing up all his life, not by being a really good person, not by what you do. Um, It is you are saved by your faith. And yet for Paul, faith is not something that you just agree to in your head, say a sinner's prayer, and then go about your life. Paul's goal is not to make a bunch of people who believe in Jesus. His goal is to bring people whose lives have been transformed by what they believe transformed into bringing obedience to Jesus, obedience to the Son, and that is His mission. Now we come to verse 7, which will tell us about our audience. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, big surprise, the audience is Romans. All right, that's who this is written to, the church in Rome. Um, now, Rome is the capital city of the empire. It's where Caesar lives. It is the center of the civilized world at this time. And we actually know uh, quite a bit about Rome. We don't know actually a lot about this church. This is one of the churches, like of all the different churches, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi. We know all, like, almost the least about this church. Um, because Acts doesn't really get into the, the, which tells a lot about Paul's journey doesn't really get into this. We don't even know actually how this church started. Um, it wasn't Paul. This is this is probably the only letter Paul ever sent to a church that he did not start. Um, but we don't know exactly how it got, got started. We have pretty solid guesses, and so I'm going to give you uh, basically a reconstruction of of the church. Uh, the the church in Rome's little like 10-year history leading up to this, or 20-year history leading up to this point, as as near as we can tell. Acts 2 says that on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit came down on the church, and Peter and the rest of the church, they go out and they begin to preach to the crowds that are gathered there. Now, Pentecost, it's in Jerusalem, but it's a pilgrimage festival, which means Jews from all over the empire come to Jerusalem for this festival. And when they're there, they hear Peter preach this good news. Um, It says 3,000 people came to faith that day. And Luke mentions in the list of all the regions where people had come from, he mentions that there were Jews from Rome in the crowd at that moment. And so what we believe happened is that there were a number of the Jewish people from Rome there and they heard the gospel about this Messiah that they had been waiting for and they brought the news back to Rome, back to their synagogues there and in the synagogues these little churches for all who were willing to believe that who bought in this these little churches started popping up and then over time, there were these Gentiles who, who liked to come to the synagogues too. They were called God fearers. They weren't ready to be like complete Jewish uh, people because that required circumcision. So that's a big commitment. And so a lot of them decided, you know what? I'm good with just being a God fearer. I'll just I'll just draw the line here. We'll be good. Um, and so they would attend the synagogues and they would listen to those things and they would listen to this teaching. And a, a number of those Gentiles began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and began to put their hope in the gospel. And then they began to. Share the good news with Gentiles who had nothing to do with the synagogue or with the Jewish faith. And so now you have this church that was started by Jewish people in Rome and Gentile people have been adding on to it and then something crazy happens. A.D. 49, uh, Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, gets tired of the Jewish people and he has them all kicked out of Rome. Uh, The Jewish historian, uh, sorry, the Roman historian Suetonius tells us about this. And not only him, but Luke actually tells us about this exact same thing in Acts. Um, But Suetonius says that he kicked them all out because of all the strife that was caused by this guy by the name of Crestus. He misspells the name, Christos. It's Jesus. He says, in A.D. 49, there had grown up to be such a commotion amongst the Jewish people about this guy named Jesus Christ. Which is true. Everywhere the gospel went, there ended up becoming this battle between those Jews who believed and those who did not. The Jews who did not attacking those who didn't. And so there became this giant commotion, so much that it was causing strife throughout the city. And Claudius said, enough. And he kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome in A.D. 49. And so now you have this church that has been started by and probably led by Jewish people all the time. And now they're all gone. And it's only Gentiles. And for five years, none of the Jewish people are allowed back in until A.D. 54 when Claudius dies. And now the Jewish people come back, but they come back to a church that is now predominantly Gentile and led by Gentiles, majority Gentiles. A lot of them who, like I said, had nothing to do with the law or the Jewish faith. And so you have these Gentile people who don't know, by Gentile we just mean non-Jewish, these Gentile people who don't know anything about the law, and you have these Jewish people who are coming back in and they tell, they tell the Gentiles the only way to be a Christian is to be Jewish, is to practice circumcision, is to practice the dietary restrictions, is to um, practice all the holy days that the Jewish people practice and to begin to create this tension within the church. Ooh, look at that. That's nice. Tension. was not that cool? Um... <laughs> We playing that. It's not actually raining. Scott's out there with like a thunder machine and stuff. So, uh, so, uh, so yeah, so it began to create this tension within the church. And, and many of Paul's themes, when you look through Romans, you'll wonder, people have wondered, why is it that he keeps coming back to the role of the Jews in salvation history and the role of the Gentiles? And he starts talking about things like dietary restrictions and all that stuff. Most people think it's because of this tension that would have formed in the early church in Rome over uh, this Jew-Gentile relations that were taking place there. Verses 8-10 through go like this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last, succeed in coming to you. So now we come to the occasion for this writing and why Paul wrote it. He writes it, he says, because he wants to come to them. He wants to make his way to Rome, and and he writes this actually in the middle of his third missionary journey. Those of you guys who are at Sunnybrook and we're in the book of Acts, he actually writes it right in the point that we're at, Acts 19 and 20. He writes this to them saying, I want to go to Jerusalem and then I want to make my way out to Rome for the very first time. But he doesn't want to stop at Rome. When you get to the end, when you get to chapter 15, this gets really interesting. Paul's main goal is to go where we're going. Paul wants to go to Spain. Um, He wants to bring the gospel where it's never been preached before. And his hope is that Rome will be a base of operations for him to be able to operate out of. And so he writes to them. Many people think his purpose for writing, his occasion for, so his occasion is to go there um, to, uh, to meet them and, and, and to see them. But many people think that his purpose is to share his teaching with them so that they'll know, okay, Paul's legit. We'll support him and we'll partner with him in sending him on to Spain. He writes this, by the way, for those who are interested in A.D. 57, give or take a year. A.D. 57, and so this seems to be part of the purpose of why Paul's writing, but it's not the only purpose. Look what he says in 11 through 13, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented prevented. In order, the reason I want to come to you, he says, is that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So what is the purpose of this book? The answer is, that's debated. We don't know for sure. Um, We know that he wants to teach them. He says here, I want to impart to you a spiritual gift. I don't think he means like, the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues or the gift of evangelism because he says in 1 Corinthians that only the Holy Spirit gives the gifts to whoever he wants to give them. I think he means, I want to come teach you and build you up and instruct you in the faith. And so a lot of people think that's exactly what this is, is Paul's going, I want to give you a fuller picture of the gospel. I want you to understand the gospel for what it is and to give it to you full. And so I'm on my way, but here's what you need to know. There are others who think that this is Paul's kind of last will and testament. He doesn't know if he's going to make it, doesn't know if he might survive, and so he writes down everything he believes, the truth of it, of what the gospel really is and puts it in writing. Um, There are some who think the main reason he's writing is just to clear Jew and Gentile relations and to ease some tension there, because there were a lot of rumors springing up around Paul that he was anti-Jewish or anti-law, and so people think he writes to clear those up. The truth is, we don't know. It's probably a blend of all of those things. All of those things come together, and, and it depends on what's going on there in the church at the time, but here's the thing we need to know. It's really, really valuable. For those of you who are wondering why I keep preaching over to you guys, it's not because I like you more. It's because the AC is blowing right here and it feels really good. Um, we know this, that, that it is really important anytime we want to understand a book of the Bible, we want to try to understand the background. We want to try to understand what was going on knowing that he was writing to a specific people for a specific purpose. Um, but for hundreds of years, actually, until Karl Barth, that name that I mentioned to you, For hundreds of years, New Testament scholars got so caught up in trying to understand the background of Romans and why specifically is Paul writing this to the Romans? And what does he want to say to them that they forgot to ask this question? What does he want to say to us? And they let Romans just be this textbook that they studied rather than the living and active Word of God that was shaping them and changing them. And so it's important for us to know the background. It's important for us to know what Paul wanted to say to them. But far more important than that is to know what it, what it says to us. We believe that the Spirit inspired these words and that He protected this word from the book of Romans for you and I to hear today. F.F. Bruce said it. You cannot read that. You can, actually, I guess. Many people have read it without being changed. But it is... It is Very likely when you come to a book like this, if your mind is open, if your heart is open to it, that you will be changed by it. And that is our prayer for you today. So here's what we want to do. Um, For just 60 seconds, um, I want to let you sit in awkward silence. Um, As as the rain kind of comes down, that'll be our background noise. Um, I want to let you sit in 60 seconds and simply ask this question, God, what do you want to say to me from this book this year? And then to just kind of say to him, I'm listening. Speak to me, Lord. Transform me through this. Change me like you've changed so many other people before through the reading of this book. So take a moment to do that, and then Scott will come up and give us some final words.
1: God, thank you for the truth of your word. I'm excited to to see what you're going to do in us this year, as we open it up and let it um, let it win, let it guide, let it teach us um, who you are and what you've done, and how we are to respond to you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to just end our time. Um, the next 10-15 minutes, just in light of the fact that it's the beginning of the semester, we're starting a new book, but but also this is the beginning of a year for you, and I want to continue this this um, reflective time. And so I have basically just two points, two simple points. and each point, I have a question that I'm going to want you to write down because I'm going to want you to. I'm going to give you a couple minutes at the end to kind of think about and reflect on. Um, but my first point. Is this is be like Paul? Now, <clears throat> here's what I mean, and I wanna, I wanna, I have, I wanna say specifically to maybe those of you who aren't followers of Jesus in this room. Okay, excited that you're here. Um, Paul was anti-Christian, if there was such a thing back then. He was anti-Jesus, and in, in in his followers, he was going to great lengths to persecute the church, to in- imprison and even kill some Christians. Um, pretty good chance that that you're not anti-Christian or that you don't hate Jesus or his followers. Um, you probably wouldn't be here. If, if you did, I probably wouldn't know by now. Um, but see, like in Paul's day, you were either Christian or you weren't. There was no kind of in-between because it wasn't advantageous to be a Christian. Actually, it probably meant that you were going to lose a lot of privileges. That you were going to um, probably lose some financial status as well. And so it wasn't—it wasn't something that was helpful. In our culture, it's a little different. <clears throat> we we live kind of in a culture where it's 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 it can be you can actually make more money if you have a little Jesus fish on your business card sometimes. You know, because you attract more Christians to your business. That that can actually be a, a good thing. And so it sometimes can be confusing to know what it means to be a Christian. And so there, there's a better chance that that there's some of you in this room that maybe aren't Christian, maybe at, at, at worst you've just missed Jesus and, and, and Christianity and maybe don't, and just kind of said, oh, it's just like the other religion, but I'll, I'll go and check it out. Um, or, But most likely, there there's some in this room that, Maybe think you're a Christian because your parents were, or because you went to church when you were young, or you went to a camp. And, and so that's not at all what it means to be a Christian. So I want to start with this idea. I want to help you see, like, Paul comes... Paul, who was anti-Jesus, had an encounter with Jesus where he humbled himself. And he surrendered his life to, to the reality of who Jesus is. And he, and he, and he gave his life to him. And so I want to I keep that in front of you. I want to I say, be like, be like Paul and humble yourself and just honestly look at who Jesus is and what He's done. And that's what we're going to unpack over these next several months, honestly. And so stick with it. Hear us out. If you can stay in through mid-January. At mid-January, if you're like, okay, I've heard enough and I don't believe it and I'm out, fine, great. Because mid-January, we're going to get through Romans 8. I'd love for you to stick around till then. But no matter what your background is, um, come to grips, all of us. Come, we need to come to grips with the reality of our sin. That's Romans 1, by the way, in a couple weeks. Paul's going to unpack what, like how we have offended God. And let me tell you, it's, it's, it might surprise you. And it definitely lumps all of us in. It doesn't matter. You may have the sweetest, kindest, nicest person in your mind. And I guarantee you, they've done what Paul will say they've done in Romans 1. We also need to come to grips with the fact that none of us are righteous. Not one of us. Not one of us can do enough good things to like earn favor with God. That's chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Paul's going to let us have it. He's going to let us know. Like, look, look, All of us are doomed on our own. But then, if you can hang out till the, the end of chapter 3 through the, through the end of chapter 8, Paul's going to unfold the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done and how that changes everything. So I'd love for you to stick around and, 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 um, and check that out. But the, to, to those of you who are followers of Jesus in this room, and by follower of Jesus I mean someone who has... Who has um, trusted Jesus with their sin, made him their king, and, and desires to, to live in obedience to him, to follow him in their life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so, to those of you, I want to say that be like Paul. Paul was about the gospel, Paul knew what he was about, it's very clear what he was about. What are you about? Chances are you're about a lot of things. The the truth is, I'm about things more things than I probably should be. So I remember when I um, left home for college. Okay, it was January of 1997. None of you were even probably a thought in your parents. I don't. Never mind. Uh, I don't even know if maybe your parents were. Anybody's parents got married after 97. Ha. See. Okay. See. Young, see, like my like my age. That's crazy. Um, so in January of 1997, I was leaving my home. I packed my car up. I left my home in north west no northeast Kansas and was driving through Kansas City down 71 all the way to Joplin, Missouri to to attend Ozark Christian College. Okay, I I lived in, at home for the first year and a half out of out of high school. Went to a junior college, worked full time, and just wanted to go down and learn more about my faith. And I was. Excited to go, so I remember driving down, and I remember being excited to meet new people. God had really grabbed a hold of my life i can 't deny that at all. Some things changed in me that um, that began that God planted seeds and things took root and and have bore fruit in my life um, ever since and but yet, there are also some things in my life going on that i that I was about that I didn 't really know what to do with and so This video, really, I identify with this video. You've probably seen it. You probably have it memorized. So go ahead. If it works. I need to start it over. But it's not like
0: this compulsive need. praise.
1: You you missed the beginning. so Let's start over. It's 17 seconds. We can do it again. It's my fault. I threw it on him last second. I didn't prepare him. Do
0: I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked.
1: Like, I need to be praised. Yeah. That's, that was... So, I, I remember going to this new college. I, I knew hardly anybody there. And I just wanted to be the nicest guy on campus. I, I wanted to open every door for everybody. I, I was just excited to, 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 to be there. And so, I remember, even to the point of annoying my later on girlfriend, who eventually became my wife, like, she would just get annoyed. Oh, my gosh, really... It, because I would just take, when people would come around, I'd take on this new, this, this other person, and I had, to, I had to be liked by them. And so I say that because uh, if I could travel back and speak to myself, I don't know if I would even address it. Because there are so many things that we're about, that, that we, I don't even know if we can fix when we, even when we realize we're about them. That we, that we you know, we don't, things that we find out about ourselves that we don't like, that just take time and they and they take god's word being, speaking truth to us, and they take god's people, reminding us of of who we are and and what they see in us and 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 reminding us of god's truth, and it requires god's spirit to kind of change us over time and so I say that to you to say, yeah, you're probably a, about a lot of things, but do you know what those things are? Do you know like what excites you? Do you know what kind of what your affection, what, what draw, stirs up your affections. It's probably good for you to, to recognize those things and to be honest with yourself about what you're about. Paul let the gospel shape who he was and what he did. And it was clear. So, what would it mean? Here's the question I'd like for you to write down What would it mean if the gospel shaped who you are? and what you do. What would it mean to let the gospel of Jesus, which we're going to unpack in the weeks to come, and the months to come, what would it mean to let it shape who you are and what you do? Here's my second point. I'll give you a second to write that down. Here's my second point. Don't be like Paul. Seriously, that'd be dumb. Here's why. Because, yes, Paul, he encountered Jesus. Yes, he humbled himself and gave himself in his life to Jesus. But Paul was also, and Drew talked about it, Paul was a Pharisee in the first century. Which meant that he made it through the ranks of schooling which meant that he most likely had all of the Old Testament memorized, if not most of the Old Testament, minus some, some poetry. So, memorized. Not just like he's read it a few times. Memorized. All, all 20, what 39 books. Okay, so, we're talking about somebody who was an elite, educated person. He also trained under Gamaliel, which was huge in that day. He also met Jesus on a road, Jesus blinded him, okay, that's a big deal, it set him apart to 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 start churches, it gave him a burden to plant churches in Asia Minor at at the point of losing his life, in which he ultimately did. Guess what? That's none of us in this room. So when, when I say be like Paul, I'm not saying go change the world. No. I love what what, um, what Jake said earlier. Like, this is about integrating the truth of your faith into your life. Because right now, you are a college student. So, what I mean by all of this is recognize where God has you and where He wants you and who He wants you to be. Recognize where God has you and who He wants you to be. So, be a 19 year old college student with your background and your experiences. Letting the Gospel of Jesus change your mind about what's important and, and, and help you view your relationships and your opportunities in the way that He would have you. Be a freshman in college, first time away from home, learning how to deal with the pressures and the stresses of a new schedule and a new routine and, 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 and new responsibilities and tasks that you've got to get done and everybody wanting something from you or everybody wanting you to do something. Like, recognize that that takes time to kind of get used to. It's okay. If you feel stressed and pressured this past week and the weeks to come, guess what? You're probably pretty normal. There's a learning curve with with big changes in life. I've had to go through them, and, and, and you will too. So recognize that, but also allow the Gospel to remind you of who you are and to remind you of, like, the hope that you have in Him. Be a 22-year-old senior who often worries about their future yet allows the Spirit of God through the Word of God and the people of God to remind you of the sovereignty of God and to call you to obey God. Like, let these things do their work because ultimately, God's in, in charge of this thing. Like He's the, run, the one growing you. He's the one that has a plan for what He wants you to become. And He doesn't have a, a six-month vision. He has a whole life. He has a whole eternity in mind. So here's the question. What would it mean to trust God is the one growing you and that He has eternity in mind? what would what would it mean to trust that God is the one growing you and that he has eternity in mind I chose this picture because um, your life is more like a tree like this rain is interesting because we just planted sod yesterday and so like God decided we needed no two days ago we needed like really good rain. So this is awesome. So it means I don't have to get here tomorrow morning and and water the grass. So, like, think about that. Like, this grass that's taking root and that hopefully will be around forever, at some point it'll be growing so much that we won't want it, we want it to die. Right now I'm just hoping that it lives. Um, But ultimately God's in, in, in charge of this thing. So think of your life as a tree. How long does it take For for a seed to grow into a tree that grows fruit, a semester, a four-year college degree, college career, takes a lifetime. I mean, it obviously doesn't take a lifetime. It takes a long time. And you can't see it happening. You you can cut a tree in half and you can see all the years where where there was a lot of rain and years where there was no rain. You can kind of see the rings and you can see how big the, uh, the, bigger, the the bigger distance between the rings, the, the more rain they got during that year? To me, that's just a sign that like, God is in control of this thing. Do you see your life as, as a tree that God is planting and He's growing and He's doing the work? And so I want to give you some time to reflect on those two questions I gave you. And then also, I, I put some verses on the screen from Jeremiah. I love these verses. I love the verses around them. Um, you might write them down, but they're going to be on the screen. I'm just going to let you read them and take a few minutes, take a couple of minutes um, to just think about those questions and then I will pray and close.